Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello, Jonathan. Nice holiday. It was great, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. Went to Amsterdam. Yeah. Went to Efteleftenig, which is uh, the fifth best uh, roller, fifth best theme park in the world, evidently. Right. Okay. Good. Good. I haven't really been actually. No. <laughs> we're filming this in advance. We're filming this in advance of your holiday, but by the time our listeners are listening to this, you'll be back from your Correct. Holiday. And we're reading Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. <laughs> a Negoci- good book. Negotiating as if your life depended on it. One of the more enjoyable ones we've had on the show, isn't it? I think so, but he's not joining us on the show. Yet. Okay. But when he sees and hears the spectacular content we have produced... I'm sure he'll have no choice but to say, I'd love to be a video guest. So basically, this guy has taken his career in the FBI as a hostage negotiator. Yes, he has. And he's selling it as a sales function. He's selling his his IP, his knowledge, his skills to... I'm not knocking him for it. You know, he's a good guy, clearly. absolutely great. Um, and, And actually, we've learned a lot from this one. This week, we are on chapters six and seven. Chapter six is called Bend Their reality and the first thing i think i want to say about chapter six is we're getting into some really practical stuff here now i think chapter six was fascinating actually what what did you enjoy the most about it just the simple examples of um the negotiation process that he went through everybody would start actual negotiation everyone would start asking for three million quid and they'd leave with five thousand dollars yeah and he's sort of i mean i'm summarizing chapter six in a sentence but his basic summary is, well, listen, I either give you 150 grand or nothing, or you can have five grand. So it's either nothing Just or five grand, which do you want? How he gets them to that point. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. But that's, yeah, he that's, says a bad deal in kidnapping is where someone pays and no one comes out. Exactly. That's a bad deal. He does um, say something that I don't really agree with. I think it's a bit unrealistic, actually, for our world. And i tell you where, where this book isn't realistic for our world, which is, I get his point, if there's four hostages... You can't say, well, just have the little one because I don't like them and I'll have the <laughs> I'll other three. I'll tell you what, yeah, listen, I'll, I'll meet you down the middle. I'll give you 150 grand, you give me two of the hostages. Yeah. That's not going to work, is it? But it does work in selling software because there's marge, so much margin in selling Look, software. I, I, I have to say, Mike, this book has... Look, I always think about the books that we read on Book Club and I try and think about them from two different angles. One, I try and think about them from the perspective of the people that we work with operationally day to day. Yes. Salespeople that we deal with who sell enterprise software, enterprise services, technology, etc. I also think about them from my own selfish little perspective as a bloke that's selling recruitment services to the world. Yeah. This chapter has made me fundamentally rethink and kick myself on a couple of the... Well, that's interesting because it hasn't for me. 
It really has with me. Particularly, there was one I did last week where I, where I realised I've split the difference. And I thought, well, why? Because you wanted the job brief. Um, but do you know what? I actually didn't want it that badly. And now I've got a job brief that I didn't want that much with a split difference fee value that actually I'm probably not going to deliver that well on. And it has, okay. it's been very powerful for me, this. I, 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 I feel it. So I think... I this, think, just I'm not saying this to be disagreeable, which you know I often am, but I, I, actually, I actually don't think that's the case with this. Because I think if I'm an IT salesperson... If you I, walk away with a deal that's profitable, what's your problem? Yeah. But could you have walked away with a deal that was even more profitable? Yes or nothing. Yeah. So you either walk away with one or two things, don't you? You either walk away with nothing or a deal that's profitable and you've already put loads of time into it. Sunk cost, yeah. as they call it. You sunk cost, haven't you? And actually what Voss is saying, metaphorically, is he's saying, I want jackpot on the fruit machine or I'm not bothered. But the fruit machine's offering me £75, not £100. Do I want to take it? Well, yeah. Because you've put sunk cost. Because you've sunk cost. Yeah. And that's what I sort of, you know, wasn't that There's happy a bit about. more to the game of poker. I'll tell you a book that I think I'd love to do on Book Club, Mike, is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke, who also wrote a great book called Decide to Great Play Great Poker. And I have mentioned this one before. Um, Annie Duke was a former World Series of Poker champion and is also a PhD in game theory. And she will come at this from a very interesting perspective. And I think it would be fascinating to maybe look at this whole subject again in a few months so suspect, from a game theory perspective. I suspect her, her uh, from what you've just said, her view of it would be different to Chris Voss's then. I wonder. I, I just wonder. I bet it would. Because um, he's it not playing the fast, odds. Chris yeah. Voss is not playing odds. So what her book is about is decision-making in, in, in circumstances of incomplete information um, and making tough calls in those situations um, based on game theory. I think that would be a really interesting book to do on this. He says here, look, on the same page, we don't compromise because it's right. We compromise because it's easy and because it saves face. He's correct about that. Yeah. And I do feel, you know, the point is he's saying don't compromise. It, it, it's the key. For me, it's a key central tenet of the book, isn't it? Well, it's what the title's about. Yeah, never split the difference. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the single off the album, isn't it? Yes, it is the single off it, the album, for sure. It's the single off the album. Um, and he says here, I'm here to call bullshit on compromise right now. We don't compromise because it's right. We compromise because it's easy, as you say. In order to say that uh, at the least we got half the pie, distilled to its essence, we compromise to be safe. Most people in a negotiation are driven by fear or the desire to avoid pain. Too few are driven by their actual goals. Um, and then he starts getting into some really great nitty-gritty, one of which is on deadlines. Yeah, I like this, actually, the deadline I thought bit. this was a really fascinating thing. Because I've worked with over... I've worked over the course of their entire careers. So I've not read that very well. He's talking about the execs and he says um, that the negotiation in which the deadline is missed never has negative repercussions and the deadline is in our mind. And he's very true about that, isn't he, I think? We invent deadlines. Well, we've got one at the minute. We're filming this in August. Yeah. So actually all the candidates and clients are going, want this sorted before I go on holiday. Correct. August. Uh, no, 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 I'm in for letting it roll because it lets the candidates September close September the 3rd. Well, this, this year the kids go back to school on September the 1st. Mon a Monday, it is perfect. A, it is, September the 1st is, September a, the 3rd is, it is. is a subtle psychological deadline in the recruitment industry. Yeah. People want a salesman at a well, desk look at on Christmas. September the look 1st. Look at Christmas. Christmas, January the 5th 
or sick the way Well, how many people is. want to get their recruitment process closed off in December? They want it closed Everyone. off and they want a human being on the territory on the 5th of January. Yeah. People create deadlines and those deadlines change the nature of negotiation. Yeah, they do, yeah. They change the nature of salary negotiations. They change the nature of the negotiations they do with recruiters. They change the nature of the, and the quality of the candidate that they hire. All of it. Massively. It make, it, the deadline, you know, I'm talking to this salesperson I was talking about in a previous episode about the salesperson that's got this real issue with the client where they're making the client sign this license, et cetera. Um, that also has a deadline in it. Um, when I was talking through the deal with the candidate, the deadline being it's the sales, the selling company's financial year end, therefore the client's got to do the deal. And the candidate, to be fair, is a little bit frustrated with that because he's saying, hold on a minute, what about the customer? When did we care about him? So I think the whole concept of deadlines is fascinating. I mean, how often have we talked to salespeople where they end up dropping... All good buyers know that enterprise sales companies operate on a quarterly basis. Of course they do, yeah. And it changes the entire... Really good mate of mine, who I go camping with a little bit, he's something megaly senior to do with buying in the Leeds NHS Trust. Right. Something just mega. And whatever the deadline is for the NHS spending, it's a certain time, isn't it? He just saves up loads of his working energy for that week because he just said they can just save a fortune. Because he can hammer salespeople that week. He just says he nails them all oh, week. Listen, yeah. you know... My, my old boy's a humble watchmaker. Um, one of the first things he always taught me was, you buy a car on the last day of the year. Well, he says it here, doesn't it? I always, I always go and buy my car last day of the month, on the quietest month. Last last day of the month and the quietest month of the year, you walk into a car showroom. You don't, yeah. You don't do it midway through the quarter. Oh, the new registration numbers. Yeah. And he says something interesting. He says, they knew my deadline, but I didn't know theirs. And he's talking there about how he's weak. And he's obviously referencing it to one of his hostage negotiations. And then we get into this word about fairness. Which is, you'll love it, this chapter. Ah, uh, yeah, it's it's quite complex. This, and some of the examples he gives about how he plays this game with some of his students on an MBA course. Is it on an MBA course? I think he talks about on some training course that he does um, about what is and what isn't. Fair. Is this where he's got to split the ten dollars? Yeah, it's got to be an even number. Yeah, uh, and so somebody goes for six Absolutely and somebody goes for four. And the person that says they got that they got four dollars says it's not fair, and he says, "Hang on a minute, five minutes ago you didn't have any dollars." Yeah. What's right. your problem? And actually, if I said, "Here's hundred dollars, go get me a cup of coffee," it'll only take you three minutes. You'd go, oh, "That seems fair." But if I then said to you, "Well, actually, whilst you went to get me a coffee, that time you saved me made me a million dollars," I'd go, "That's not." That's I'd go, "That's fair. not fair," and you go, "Why? Just giving you hundred dollars." Yeah. And, and and how he how he plays with that. I thought it was really, really fascinating. Um, he says, the most common use is a judo-like defensive move that destabilizes the other side. This manipulation usually takes the form of something like, we just want what's fair. Um, the second use of the F-bomb is more nefarious. In this one, your counterpart will basically accuse you of being dense or dishonest by saying, we've given you a fair offer. It's a terrible little jab meant to distract your attention and manipulate you into giving in. Um, he said, if you find yourself in this situation, best reaction is to simply mirror that has just been lobbed at you. Fair? You'd respond, pausing to let the words power to do them as it was intended to do. Follow that with a label. It seems like you're ready to provide the evidence that supports that. That's um, why I circled label, because we did labels a couple of chapters yeah, ago. Did, That's yeah. why it's so important, the label thing. Yeah, You absolutely. have to understand that. Um, and then he says, here's how I use it. 
Early on in a negotiation, I say, I want you to feel like you are being treated fairly at all times. So please stop me at any time if you feel I'm being unfair and we'll address it. I'm going to use that this week. Fair enough. Definitely. When I, when I come negotiate some T's and C's with a client. Um, and he really comes into some really interesting stuff. He quotes Daniel Kahneman again. He also quotes a book called How to Become a Rainmaker, which has now found its way onto my list. Oh, have you not read that? No. <laughs> um, and he talks about discovering emotional drivers behind what the, uh, what's important to the other party. So we're really getting into some interesting stuff then. And then anchoring emotions. I knew you'd like that, Johnny. Go on, so what do you think I liked about it? Because you like anchors, because you're all in the NLP stuff and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's not quite the context in which he's talking about it, is it? Um, go on, I'm going their emotions in preparation for loss. Go on, you tell them what you think of it. He's talking about, by, so he's not talking about anchoring in the NLP context of a trigger that triggers something else. He's talking about... Um, I got a lousy proposition for you. I said, and pause with each. By the time we got off the phone, you're going to think I'm a lousy businessman. You're going to think I can't budget or plan. You're going to think Chris oh, Voss yeah. is a big talker. His first project ever out of the FBI, he screws it up completely. He's saying, take it to a point where actually they already... So what he's basically saying is he gives an example here of how he screwed up um, an undercharged customer and then he was the prime contractor and he had all these subcontractors working for them and actually the subbies all thought they were on two grand. So what he's basically saying is you go in and place the emotion already there. Listen, I've screwed up here. By the time we're at the end of this call, you're going to think I'm an idiot. You're going to hate me. You're going to probably want to go mad with me. Da 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 And you're actually putting the emotion there. You're placing it, is what he's basically saying. And then the other bit, let the other guy go first most of the time. What do you think to this? Where are you? Negotiation, page 129. That's very practical. Why? All right. So you've just spoke to a client, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, what's your fees? Okay. What's and your what fees? are you going to say? So so, 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 how much do you charge? Yes. Well, what he would say is he'd say, okay, uh, here's where I'm at, Mr. Customer. What's the target for the job? He would, yeah, but that's just not practical real life, is it? Well, he's saying it is. Well, I think he's wrong. And I think you think it's wrong, but you're just... Uh, uh, well, all right, so what if I come in and say, okay, typically our fees are anywhere between... Bear with me, I just need to... Before I quote my fee, I just need to get a better understanding of your organisation and what you're doing. So let me just make sure I've understood. What's the target? Well, it's 1.6 million. And what are you going to be paying for the candidate? About 70 grand. Okay, just give me a second to calculate that. Okay, well, 1.6 million. And what he's actually saying is you would actually say to the client, well, actually I can charge you anywhere between... 17.8% and 23.2%. Oh, do you think that's practical? I think it's worth trying to see what results you get. Possibly, but actually that wasn't the question. The question was, do you think it's practical? I don't. Well, I'm going to try it and see. Well, that's And then I'll tell you whether I think it's practical or not. That's the best option. I just don't think it's that practical, that really. Why? Because I think, you know, whilst a lot of his book is great, and How I really do... How much do you charge? How much do I charge? 25%. Yeah. What if you came in and said, well, actually, it's, I could very easily sit here and name a price. What I'd like to do is get a better understanding of where you're at, get a better understanding of the job so I can get the pricing absolutely bang right for you. That's what most of our candidates would be saying. No, it's 
Yes, it is. No, well, Salesforce isn't a client, but what does Salesforce do? It's $1,000 a license, buddy. What do LinkedIn do? It's $4,000 a what Microsoft license, do? buddy. Well, maybe, what do Microsoft do? Maybe the Iconics at Microsoft. <laughs> what do our, From our previous book. What do Oracle do? What do Box do? Maybe they make what does Symantec do? Maybe they say, well, hold on a minute, let's find a better understanding. No chance they say that. Absolutely no chance they say that. The price on, on I've typically, I've obviously And what fixed, you're saying is, I every enterprise client we deal with just sells to the client based on list price. No, but I'm saying what every enterprise client will do, in fairness, the ones I just listed, they're not our clients. So Microsoft aren't our clients. No. What I was picking out were the most successful software companies in the world. And I'm saying what the most successful software companies in the world do is tell you what their price is straight off the bat. They don't, they don't wait for the other guy to go first. I think they do. I think because a lot of those prices think, are negotiated and a lot of those bigger enterprise uh, deals uh, how are is negotiated. It, well, how easy is it to negotiate with LinkedIn on their price? Well, for us, as little inward revenue, so, impossible. Um, but what if you were Harvey Nash? Do you reckon Harvey Nash is paying the list price? Yeah, but 90, yeah, more than 90% of the uh, UK companies are SMB. Do you reckon Michael Page is paying the list price to LinkedIn? I don't know, but that's not the question, though, is it? I'm asking you a question, which is, yeah. how easy is it to negotiate with LinkedIn? How easy is it to negotiate with Salesforce? Well, if you're Harvey Nash PLC so or Michael Page PLC, it. so I'm going with it, it is, which is the software. I think the the software puppy dog stale SaaS market has taken the goodness out of the salespeople and their ability to do yes, that. Yes, it's de-skilled a lot of them. De-skilled a lot. But of I think them. if you're winning a big enterprise level deal, are you really? Here's a good example. Okay. Right. If you rang Salesforce today and said, "I want to buy Pardot," okay, they will not quote a price to you. Well, I know, because I've tried it. Fair enough. They will not quote a price to you. The salesman, hello, Mr. Graham, I'm calling from Dublin and I'm your sales guy, and next week you're going to get a new one, and then the week after you're going to get another new one. <laughs> um, but if you ring Salesforce, right, and you try and speak to your account manager to buy some new stuff, and you say to them, listen, I want to buy Pardot, they will not quote a price to you. They'll go away and they say, we need to do discovery. How we about, need to do discovery, Mr. Graham. Then they go away, they do this big discovery, you spend three hours on a call, then you spend two hours on a demo. Then they come back and go, oh, it's £38,000, Mr. Graham. So how about this then? As a, then you actually try and negotiate with them and they say, no, there's no negotiation. So how about this then as, as, as a thought process for you then, Jonathan? So let's say you're a man that likes buying cameras, I think. Yes, yes. I if, think I, if, if I was flush. I think you're into a bit of, ca I think you're into a bit I'm of cam into camerography. Kit. Yeah. Whatever the word is. So we've got two cameras. We've got a Leica. Yeah. And we've got a Hasselblad. Both high-end gear. We're talking high-end high gear. High gear. Hasselblad's a bit higher than Leica, clearly. But both yeah. high-end high technology. You know the price of the Leica. Yeah. You've got to go into the Hasselblad shop, and he's not going to tell you the price before you've had your demo and all the rest of it. Which camera shop are you going to go into first? Well, it depends whether I've got the money or not. But let's say you have. So I've got cash. Yep. I've got serious wads of cash in my pocket. Yeah. I know exactly how much the like is going to cost, but I don't know how much the hassle bar is going to cost. You've no idea. Well, me personally, I'm going to go to the Leica shop. And that's because the, I know I'm going to think, right, I know how much it's going to cost. And, that's and I'm a, not worried about getting and, but, stung by but are you right, salesman at the hassle bar. Are you right to turn around to the client, you know, some guy firm as, as, a, as, as, a top, as a purportedly top-class salesperson, yes. as a man who prides himself on his salesmanship, actually, maybe I should walk into the Hasselblad shop and cut a deal. But there's a bit of cognitive bias here in which, actually, I'd prefer to own a Leica than a Hasselblad. That's only because everyone knows what a Leica is and nobody's ever heard of Hasselblad. 
People are looking it up now on the, on the online. <laughs> but getting back to his point, he's saying never say the price first. I just think that's unrealistic, personally. Right, I think we've dis agreed to disagree on that. Yeah, one. yeah, definitely. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, and then he talks about establishing ranges. Yes, yes, that's what you were talking about, establishing a range. Yeah, so I went, I moved further on about establishing the range, and he actually gets into some really interesting stuff. I don't think it's in this chapter. It's in later chapters about a strategy that is really clever around that. Yeah, well, then he goes on, he goes, body he says, but don't deal with numbers in isolation, which is what you were referring to, actually. Yes. You were sort of saying, listen, Mike... How much do I want to pay? I don't know. How much is it going to cost me? It's around... Well, no. What he's saying is, the client turns around and says, how much do you charge, Mr. Jonathan Graham, recruitment consultant? Actually, what he's saying is, well, actually, just let me make sure I've understood it a little bit better. Yeah, but that's not why he said it. Instead he said it to negotiate. Out, yeah, instead of coming out with some price from which you can then get... Yes, but that's not why he said it. From he which said... you can then split the difference. Yeah, that, exactly. That's why I said it. So the way that you've represented it is, isn't... Well, anyway... So anyway, how to negotiate a better salary? And then what, just explain what he's talking about in ranges. So he's talking about, for example... Uh, well, he's the range, 130 he's to 170 about, or something? Yeah, he's talking about some guy uh, negotiating some salary. Instead of saying I'm worth 110 grand, Jeremy might have said, at top companies like Xcorp, people in this job get between 130 and 170 grand. I'm going to try that. Yeah, well... Next time a client says to me, how much does your candidate want? How much is it going to cost me to hire the guy? I'm going to say... At companies like X, Y, and Z, the top candidates there are earning between that and that on a basic salary. Yeah, not a bad course of action. I'm going to try that. I think that's useful. Johnny, I like the book. Because I'll tell you what it has got me wondering is, am I leaving money on the table? Am I negotiating well enough? It has made me really You're going to leave money on the table, aren't you? That's just an inevitability. Because there's no way you know exactly what that top line budget is. Potentially. More than likely. And then what's this pivot to non-monetary terms? That's right. So what he's saying is you then go to something that you can give away cheaply mm -mm. and easily, which we know about. When you do talk numbers, use odd ones. I really that, like I, that. I, and then he goes on to say exact ones as well. I thought that I was really like that. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Less rounded. So he goes, £37,263. Feels like a figure that you came to as a result of thoughtful calculation. And that's my point. The client turns around to you and says, Johnny, how much does it cost to use your recruitment services? I say, why don't you tell me a little bit more about the problem? Let's work out how much it's going to cost you. Client then gives me a bit more information and I go, right, based on what you've told me on salary, the work that we need to do, this and that, I think I can probably come in at 37.25% or whatever. Why would you not try that instead of, yeah, it's 30%. Hoping that the client's going to chip you down to 25. I don't know, I seem to have a lot of clients. Yes, but you're a pipeline guy. <laughs> well, that's a different thing, though, isn't and it? And that's coming back to the point we made earlier in the book. Anyway. Which is, actually, you can be all a world-class negotiator or you can be a world-class pipeline generator. And actually, I'd rather be a world-class pipeline generator. <laughs> so he talks about... Because it's a lot easier than sitting there thinking, oh, I've got to get this negotiation right. Whereas in Chris Voss's world... He doesn't have much pipeline. Well, and he he has can't a... sit there thinking, shit, what if I lose this deal? Yeah, if we'll he lose these... this deal, his punters are all dead. So I like this, actually. If they can't meet your non-salary requests, they may counter with even more money. Smart, yeah. that. Smart. Really good. Really, really good. Smart, and he actually, gets, he actually gets into how to negotiate a better salary. It's worth reading for that alone. Um, salary terms without success terms is Russian roulette. I really like that as well. Once you've negotiated the salary, make sure to define your position as well as metrics for the next raise. Mm, mm, I agree with that completely. Yeah, 
imagine that. How many candidates would do could do that where they'd say, right, and also in the offer letter, I want the metrics for my raise. Yeah, they, they, they wouldn't get many offer, any job offers. I think a lot of your clients just walk away Well, your problem with that is in the enterprise space is not many HR teams are empowered enough to do yeah, that. Yeah, they, they just wouldn't do that, would they? they? Well, they're just not empowered enough to do it. People would lose a lot of job opportunities. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I mean, my favourite negotiation strategy in salaries is a business plan with the return on investment on hiring the individual clearly written out and the break-even point. I got to tell you now about, with the desired salary based on that business plan. I got to tell you now. I think I think I actually think it's all a load of rubbish. That I think the number 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 one to negotiate your salary is don't bother. I think arrange the interview correctly. I am coming to my first interview on the basis of that's the basic salary that I want. Yes, well, there is... Do it, front-load it, get it done. Furthermore, what you and I both know as recruiters is there is only so much leeway in a salary negotiation. Yeah, so just get done to start with. And that people... Often one of the biggest mistakes candidates make is they think that everything is negotiable. Yeah, and it's just not... You know, I did a video blog on this a while ago. Everything is not negotiable. I have it with candidates. So would you like me to go and tell them you want to send the job down? No. Well, I want 110k base, but I made it very clear to you that the client's budget's between 85 and 95. Yeah, turn it down, turn it down. So the maximum the client can actually physically potentially offer you is 95k. That's my point. But I want 110, gone. Mike. You shouldn't have gone. Well, he shouldn't be in the interview then. Well, they don't get in the interview. He shouldn't nice be in the interview. If, if that's I've got a question at. at the minute. I hope he's listening because we were talking about his book, actually. And every time I arrange an interview, he says, how much is it paying? I say, well, actually, Bill, um, it's paying enough for the job. I think you're asking for too much money. If they offer you a job, I'm going to tell them to offer you less than you're asking them for. And it's like a joke between, well, you're going to look after him yeah, while Yeah, but I'm it's holding. about expectation setting, isn't it? Anyway, I love this. This is a great interview. So we're on, are we on page, chapter seven now? No, no, because there's, a, there's a page, a, what, there's a question on page 136. One of the best questions I've ever heard somebody ask in an interview. What's that? What does it take to be successful here? Love that. That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, one of my favourites is... I like candidates to turn around to clients in, it, when they are talking about salary and saying, listen, if you're offering me the job, I take it that you're offering me on the basis that you're assuming I'm going to hit the target, aren't you? Yeah, that's a good and, line, obviously. And the client says, yes. And at that point, my encouragement to the candidate is to say, therefore, what is it worth to you to ensure that the target is hit next year rather than what exactly am I asking? Yeah, but not many candidates are going to say that. No, because not many of them have got the bollocks. Correct, yeah. Actually. Yeah. It's the right thing to say. They're it's absolutely right. the right thing to say. Not a lot of them have got the coyones to say it. Yeah, they won't say it. But anyway, that's the way to play it. it is. Chapter seven. Create the illusion of control. This is the point about <laughs> uh, the bit where I was saying about, please, may I clarify, it gives the illusion of control. That's my point. Now, we'll so just, let's, we'll just, let's just dwell on that for a minute more because we found out about it a bit about it last week or <laughs> half an hour ago. I'll tell you why I think that's a bad starting point. Why? So, so, so when we... So, but so it, you're a... Hold on a minute. You, of all people, are a massive fan of giving the illusion of control. I'm not. I, I, I just don't ever try and pretend that I'm in control. You are more so than me. You are much more self-effacing than I am. I wouldn't and have you don't so. let And you don't let people think that you're in control. You do it more than I do. I never do it. Yeah, so you're point? just bullying me for this one point. <laughs> I tell you, it is. I tell you, it is. I, and I know. 
We should move on from this, shouldn't we? Lauren's looking bored. She's Sat asleep. here in the book club <laughs> basement. Anyway, God, let's move on for it. Chapter yeah, seven. Then. So what, now what's interesting is, I don't know if you know, but Chris Voss invented the open question. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tool that we developed is something I call the calibrated or open, open-ended question. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't read it like that. What? No, said, <laughs> he invented the open question. I actually put it, really? Um, what it does is remove aggression from conversations by acknowledging the other side openly without resistance. In doing so, it lets you introduce ideas and requests without sounding pushy. It allows you to nudge. Great. And it's brilliant. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking the piss a bit, but I, I do really love the fact that what we are talking about here is open and closed questions. Well, we're talking about the construct of a good question, aren't we? And I feel a bit guilty about taking the mickey, actually, because what he's talking about is a use case <laughs> based on where he's actually lost to, lost a hostage. Um... So I'm a bit mean, really, for laughing it's about it. It's interesting. I don't know if, if you, where you're up to on the page, can't, but, but he gets talking about the question, why? Ah, interesting. It really got me thinking that. So he says, why is an aggressive question? I, I wrote, I wrote here. I wrote here. A rev- so, so those listening anyway, so he's talking about opening questions. He's talking about what, blah, blah, blah. And he's what saying, and how? And he's saying, don't use the why. two key ones are what and yeah, how. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, don't Obviously, you- we're all taught who, what, where, why, how, when. He's saying, He's saying, do not use why. Yeah. I actually wrote on one of my big pink things here, don't agree, you can ask why, it just has to be clean. For example, I wonder if I could invite you to tell me more about that. You've not said why? No, but I have asked why. Oh, no, no, I think he's talking about using the word why. Yes. I think he's saying specifically don't use the word why. For example, why are you looking for a job? Yes, That's I use pretty that. aggressive. I say... I'm wondering if I can invite you to tell me a little bit more about what's happening for you right now that's got you thinking of looking for a job. See, I don't use that because I think that's a bit conceited, really. I do actually ask somebody why you're looking for a job. Yeah, but that's because I'm a mealy-mouthed No, but you know what I mean? Linguist. I would rather say to somebody why. But having but, read this, actually, I've sort of started why is think, brusque? Yeah, yeah, I started changing it for what's happening for you now. What's happening for you now that's got you thinking of looking for something new? It's still why. It's still why, but it's not why. Yes. It's not a little jab in the face, is it? No, it's much more gentle. And what's interesting for me is actually, I've realised how gentle my questioning technique has become over the years. See, I don't think mine has. I think mine's got more direct. Whereas mine's become much more gentle, I think that's much a, more subtle. Mine isn't, but I think that's a product of the market. And the candidates that you operate Because my with. candidates will just say, why? You want success? Why? Why? Well, it's good, though. Yeah. The guys are placing them plenty of money. Yeah, um, and then you get. I've starred a couple of bits here. Um, I mean, let's get it right. You could you could earn a living on those two questions. What? How? What? How? What? How? They're what, good questions. How. You could earn a living on it. Yeah. What's interesting? Just asking though, those all the way through a conversation. I did. I did, I did get myself wondering about tonality though, because I tend to find kids say why. Why? But because they're little. And they're kids, and they've got kids' voices. But they do it with sweet, inquisitive style. That's what I mean. Style. So maybe they should use, you should use your radio DJ voice. Your FM late night radio Yeah, but I don't DJ like that anyway. Voice. What about this is important to you? How can I help this make it better for you? How would you like me to proceed? You know, he calls How can it, we solve this problem? How can we solve this problem? That's a beautiful question, that. Yeah. It's much if more... If you were sat opposite a client, and he said, oh, God, it's a nightmare. Somebody's left right about And you said, how can we solve this problem? Got on. You, I'd be surprised if you hadn't. Yeah, good start, that, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, absolutely. Calibrated questions make your counterpart feel like they're in charge, but it's really you who is framing the conversation. Your counterpart will have no idea how constrained they are by your questions. And what he's saying is by asking good open questions in the right places at the right point, you drive the conversation in the direction you want anyway, mm, mm, mm. which is absolutely true. Um, and then he's talking about how not to get paid about this particular example of some debt recovery. Yeah, some, some debt recovery, some lady that was selling accounting stuff or something. Yeah, I really liked that. It was really good. Um, he said, when people feel that they are not in control, they adopt what psycholo psychologists call hostage mentality. That is, in moments of conflict, they react back to their lack of power by either becoming extremely defensive or lashing out. They do. Mm. If they feel you've taken the control out of them. And I think that's, it's useful stuff. And then the key lessons he's talking about here, don't try to force your opponent to admit that you are right. Aggressive concentration is the enemy of constructive negotiation. It's the enemy of constructive selling. Yes. You know, avoid questions that can be answered with yes or tiny pieces of information. These require little thought. Ask calibrated questions that start with the words how or what. Yeah. Don't ask questions that start with why unless you want your counterpart to defend a goal that serves you. Calibrate your questions to point, you know, you, you can ask why. You can just reflect to get a why sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was an interesting thing to say. Yeah, one of the interesting bits, bite your tongue when you're attacked in a negotiation, pause and avoid angry emotional reactions. Easy said than done, but it is bang right. And then we're on to chapter eight, which is guaranteed. Are we doing execution. that today? Yeah, and then we'll finish off with nine and ten, I think, next Okey week. Okey-doke. Or do you want to wrap up right now? Don't let's, mind. Let's do chapter eight. Make this one a long one and then a short one next week, shall we? Yes, cool. Okay, so chapter eight. Guarantee execution. And he's talking about this prison break. I can't remember which one it was, actually. In, in uh, St. Martin's Parish, Louisiana, where a few, what he basically, the example he gives is um, they do this prison break. The prisoners are all up for, what he gets to the bottom of is that the prisoners are actually up for um, surrendering in the prison riot where they've got the governor hostage. But actually, as their nervousness about surrendering is that they're going to get an absolute leathering when that's they come right, out. That's right, that's right, that's right. as a result, what he realises is, well, if we give you a walkie-talkie, when your first one comes out, he can walkie-talkie back to you. He can uh, walkie-talkie back to you that, no, I haven't had a serious kicking having been an arse um, and I'm safe and I'm back in my cell and all is good. And the first punter comes out take the walkie -talkie and the, some SWAT guy goes, what on earth is this geezer doing with a walkie talkie and takes it off him. And that the other inmates go bananas and nearly end up killing the governor only for them, somebody to finally realize. And what he's saying is it's all well and good, but you've got to deliver on what you've. So the, the, the crux of the point is great and everything. And you've negotiated it. My God, you better, you better guarantee it and deliver it. Do you know what I actually put on page 170? Yeah. And I have done it. And I'd forgotten I'd done it. I've emailed Boris Johnson to get him to read this book. <laughs> You're right. He should read it. I really, really, really hope that the people who are, in inverted commas, over in Brussels now trying to do a deal, I really hope that... Sorry about that, Lord. I, I really <laughs> hope they're as accomplished as Chris Voss. I'd send Voss before My Boris. My nervousness is that they are far from it. Well, it's political, but I know what you mean. And then we get into this question. How am I supposed to do that? Which is very, very axial in the book. Yes, he uses that a lot, doesn't he? When forced with a tough, I want this and I want that, he he's basically goes. going, how am I supposed to do that? Or variations of that. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And in the end, you can wear him out with it. 
your carefully calibrated how customers will convince them that the final solution is their idea. That's crucial. People always make an effort to implement a solution when they think it's theirs. How will we know we're on track? How will we address things if we find we're off track? Um, which is really cool. Influencing those behind the table. What he also talks about are he gets into what in reality is strategic selling. He and does, understanding yeah. who all the stakeholders You're on page are. 171 here, aren't you? Yes. When other people will be affected by what is negotiated and can assert their rights, blah, blah, blah. And there is. There's always somebody, you know, I'm thinking back to some terms negotiations I've done with a, a prospect client recently where what I've realised is actually there was a person in the room who wasn't in the room who actually was the real power and the real purpose behind that negotiation. And I didn't read it at the time, but what I haven't done is negotiate. That was a black swan for you, wasn't it? That Yes, which we will come to. Yes. Absolutely. And in that, then what we're getting into is uh, questions like, how does this affect everybody else? How on board is the rest of the team? They're, they're good questions that a good strategic salesperson is going to ask anyway. In any sales cycle, you would have thought negotiation. So. If a top strategic salesperson isn't asking that question, they're in the wrong place. Um, and then we get to, you know, I really like this bit where he's talking about um, such simple, elegant questions. Which How do we know on? if we pay you that you won't hurt Alistair? You know, one of this this other negotiation, this other uh, hostage negotiation, where they're paying the kidnapper on a sort of weekly or daily basis on a day rate mm. to not kill the guy. And then simple question, when we run out of money, what will happen? And the kidnapper paused. It will be all right, he finally responded. He just admitted, isn't it? He's not, yeah, going, yeah. To, he's not going to kill the guy. And then this next bit, I really like, 738, 55% rule. Yeah, I like that. We're talking about the relationship uh, between the message being words-based, tone of voice, and 55% from the speaker's body, face, and language. See, I didn't wonder about that. Because, for example, my voice has only one tone to it. <laughs> Which we've talked about before. But do you know what I mean? Does that put me at a disadvantage? No, because it has more tone to it than you think it does. Or maybe it's because I'm congruent, because he does talk about incongruence. And that's the thing I think about the... I'm going to go back to his radio night, radio DJ voice. And say, actually, what if that's a radio DJ voice, but it's an incongruent radio yes. DJ voice? Well, it is incongruent by nature of the fact that you are acting. You're acting, aren't you? But part of the art of great acting is yeah, that, yeah, you yeah, believe that you believe the actor in front yeah, of you. We're doing sales guys. They're not great actors, are they? But I think the great sales guys are. Yeah, but there aren't that many that are that great. The truly great, the the five percent. Yeah, but the uh, elite. Yeah, but there's clients aren't recruiting. No, the elite, and that's my point about the scalability. Oh, you are right about that. Hundred percent agree about that. There's no scalability in this book. You can't build a sales force doing this book. If you're interviewing, don't a, use this book as an interview guide. No, you'll never hire anybody. No, but as a salesperson, if you can pick up some of this skill, you might just end up in the five percent. Don't know. Don't know. I don't think you will. I just don't think anybody will get the voice right. Yeah. I just don't think they will. And then he talks about little things like the Pinocchio effect, how people who are lying talk more. Simple stuff. It is true, that. Yeah. But I touch my nose a lot. That's just because it's been broken a lot of times. People say that on the Jobcast videos. Why do you keep touching your nose? You're lying. Say so it's because my nose. Yeah. yeah. Quite, <laughs> often. Quite often, yeah. Lauren sits opposite me and I go, right, Lauren, I put my hands down. I've touched my nose. Right. Anyway. 
right? So we're talking but about the Chris things, discount. Little things like using people, using names. Love that, the Chris discount. Personalising yourself in the mind of the Yeah, individual. and basically, he, he, he's on about his negotiations. Really like that. He goes, what does Johnny get? Yeah. I'm Chris. Hi, my name's Chris. My What's name the Chris discount? Yeah. I understand that that's, you, you can't do that. What's the Johnny discount? I'm going to try that. <laughs> what? <laughs> Starbucks? McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> And then he gives his example of the buying this car, doesn't he? Yeah, how to get your counterparts to bid against themselves. Um, really good. This is all great stuff. You've got to read this, listeners. It is one of the. It's, I love this. Your offer is very generous. I'm sorry. See, I'd use I'm sorry there, actually. I've, your, I've highlighted this. Your offer is very generous. I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for me. That's an elegant way of saying no. Really cool. And then the first step in the note, so he talks about what he calls a no series. So the first bit is you say, oh, how am I supposed to do that? Mm. Then the next bit is, after that, some version of, your offer is very generous, I'm sorry, that just doesn't work for us, is an elegant way to say no. Then the next bit is, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid we just can't do that. It's a little bit more direct. And the can't do that does double great, does great double duty. By expressing the in an inability to perform, it triggers the other side's empathy towards you. Really, uh, this bit... You've got to read this, listeners, because it gets quite clever. Um, and about, uh, that's right, about the, is this the one with the Haitians that just wanted to party at the weekends? Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah. The, the, oh, no, well, maybe that was in deadlines because they just wanted it done by, by Friday, didn't they? Yes, because they wanted to go out and get pissed at the weekend. Oh, no, this is a different example, which is really, really good, where he goes, uh, he just keeps going back to the offer. On a, it was on a, a property, wasn't it? No, it was on a business. The guy's selling his business to his other mates. The price he offered is very fair, and I certainly wish I could afford it. Bruno has worked very hard for this business, and he deserves to be compensated appropriately. I'm very sorry, but wish you the best of luck. It's so subtle. And then he uses it. And, and then again, he, thank you for offer. You were generous to reduce the price, which we greatly appreciate. I really wish I could pay you this amount, but I'm sincere in that I cannot afford this amount at this time. As you know... I'm in the middle of a divorce and I just cannot come up with that type of money. Again, I wish you the best of luck. And then, and then he's got to his direct number, hasn't he? And then finally, thank you again for the generous offer. You've really come down on the price and I've tried very hard to come up with that amount. Unfortunately, no one is willing to lend me the money, not even my mum. <laughs> I've tried various avenues, but cannot come up with the funding. In the end, I can offer you £23,567, although I can only pay £15,321.37 up front. <laughs> I could pay you the remainder over a one-year period, but that is really the most I can do, and I wish you the best in your decision. And I love how they've done that over point, over yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could do that in a salary negotiation or negotiating for a candidate, but as we say, there's only limits, and they are budgeted limits. And then he gets to, and it's in the next chapter where I really love it, in Bargain Hard. That, for me, is one of the great takeaways, and we will talk about that next week. But I felt in these few chapters we've talked about on this week's show, we're into some really nitty-gritty useful stuff. And I can understand why so many candidates have said to us, never split the difference was a game-changer for me. Yeah, me too. It's interesting, the guy that recommended it to us for this show, uh, I got his role. I can remember him negotiating his basic salary. And did he do it in a not dissimilar way to Very that? Very similar. Oh, that's ace. I hope he's listening. It was, it was smart how he did it. I'm so sorry, but I simply can't afford to live on that basic salary. The amount I, I, can, afford, the amount I can afford to live on is... X. Really smart. Really smart. 
I've sat down with my wife. We've looked at the family finances. And really smart. Financially, we simply cannot accept that salary. Really smart. We can't live on it. We'd have to be cutting right into the bone of yeah, our You're all right, Johnny. You've proved your point. Come on, let's just end the show. We we... Not... This has been ages, this one. Has it been a long one? Oh. Oh, half oh, four. I'm going to miss yoga, Pricey. Well, there's no... Shame Goodbye.